and welcome back to Season 2, Episode 2 of the Axe and Politics. We apologize for the delay. We had big game two weeks ago. It was Thanksgiving break last week. We've been pretty busy, but we're back. We're better than ever. We've got a great interview with Ralph Castro and Michael Kim later on, the, later on in the episode regarding Stanford's new alcohol policy, so stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, I'm Lucas. I'm Kayla. I'm Ben. Yeah, so let's just jump right into our uh, weekly review. We've got a lot to talk about. We're going to talk about sort of our highlights from the past two and a half, three weeks or so. And I think we're just going to start with uh, the coming together of the Trump administration. He's made a variety of picks for his cabinet and sort of his his um, his top aides and such. So what do we got? We have Rince Priebus as the chief of staff, um, and we have Steve Bannon as the chief strategist. So if you are a West Wing fan, think Rince Priebus as Leo McGarry, and think Steve Bannon as Josh, sort of. Um, again, chief strategist is not necessarily an official position, but it's um, sort of a close advisor that the president names. Yeah, I got Jeff Sessions for AG. Uh, Tom Price recently was named uh, for HHS. Betsy DeVos uh, was named for Education Secretary. Elaine Chow, Mitch McConnell's wife, for Secretary of Transportation. Steve Mnuchin for Secretary of Treasury. Wilbur Ross for Commerce. Um, and, you know, some other rumored, obviously Romney's r- rumored right now for Secretary of State. Um, apparently Ben Carson's been offered the HUD job, but unclear whether he's going to take it. He said he's unqualified, so <laughs> maybe he won't take it. <laughs> um, but regardless, I think looking at these picks, especially looking at those top two aides, you know, his two, his right and his left hand, so to speak, Priebus and Bannon, you got Priebus, which is pretty much... The, uh, the epitome of the establishment. I mean, this is a guy, he chaired the RNC for a couple of years, I think, and so very establishment figure. And then Bannon, who pretty much the epitome of the alt-right, as in, you know, the guy runs Breitbart News. So it's interesting how he's trying to appeal the establishment while, some, while also sort of keeping the more extreme uh, people in check as well. And if you're looking for some fun facts, um, Jeff Sessions was um, actually up for a federal district district judgeship in the 1980s, um, but was blocked by the Senate after being accused of making some racially insensitive comments. Um, we've got, again, as Ben said, Elaine Chow, who's the wife of Mitch McConnell, um, we've, and um, Wilbur Ross, who's the Secretary of Commerce, is actually a billionaire, and um, Steve Mnuchin, who is um, a former Golden, Goldman Sachs employee. So... Just a little bit of background information on some of the picks here. Um, yeah, I mean, looking at this, there was a lot of talk when uh, Steve Bannon was first nominated to his chief strategist position of him acting as a kind of resputant in the office um, and as Trump being puppeteered by him. But looking at this list, I mean, it seems to me that this could be an entire cabinet of resputants. I mean, I'm looking at Tom Price specifically for HHS. If ever you wanted to get somebody to dismantle the Affordable Care Act, he's your guy. And what breaks my heart is the prospect of the Trump team instituting a replacement, something along the lines of what Paul Ryan's uh, put out, where it would keep a lot of the, the rails, a lot of the framework. You'd, the main ideas would still be there. You'd still have subsidies for health care, et cetera. Um, but they would make some changes. Some of them are good changes, for example. I mean, maybe putting people in the high-risk pools is a good idea. Maybe charging old people a little more for health insurance is a good idea. But the, what just you know gets at me is the idea that they would keep a lot of the railings, make some cosmetic changes, and then go around saying that they repealed and replaced Obamacare. That's the worst. Yeah, I would say that the dialogue surrounding sort of the the, the future of healthcare in America has been um, 
I don't know, I don't know, misguided is the word. I don't know exactly what I'm looking for. It's definitely sort of kind of Ben was alluding to. It's definitely missing something, right? The, you know, Republicans, it's not that they're just going to repeal Obamacare. They don't want what the status quo was before Obamacare. I think everyone on the aisle can agree that sort of leaving health care be on its own is not a good option because the status quo is pretty awful. It's weird how health economics works in this country. But, and, you know, Price is a guy, he's a policy wonk for sure. He's been on, I think, the Ways and Means or Appropriations Committee for some time now in the House. And um, he himself, you know, Ryan has his Better Way plan. Price has developed a pretty lengthy, significant, sort of comprehensive framework. Lots of Republicans don't really have this. They, like, say, you know, like, let's repeal Obamacare. The replace part is where we sort of lose it. But these guys, they do have, they, they seriously thought about how to replace it. And... So what's sort of awkward is that there's going to be this awkward transition period, right, where you're going to have no Obamacare. It's going to take a while to solely, fully institute whatever that replace is. And in that transition period, that's when you're going to have all those people lose their health care. But, you know, people on the left, they say, okay, we're, you know, Obamacare enrolled millions of people in health care. All those people are going to lose their health care. Well, they're going to lose it for maybe a couple months, and then they're going to get back on it when the replacement package comes in. Maybe not all of them. Certainly not the people on Medicaid. But um, it's interesting. I don't know. But, it, yeah, the price pick certainly suggests that he's very, very serious about tackling Obamacare, whatever that means. It's not fully, like Ben said, not fully dismantling, but um, refining. Yeah, and, again, it's the, the biggest thing is going to be the rhetoric that they choose to put out, um, especially considering what they do with it. Um, and also, I mean, going forward in terms of um, these cabinet picks, there's going to be a lot of... Um, more of these kind of awkward moments when Trump sort of has to take back the things that he said, particularly on Twitter, um, about the people that he's now trying to appoint to his cabinet, which is kind of funny. Um, you know, you talk about, like, the tweets about um, Mitt Romney, and now he's thinking about him for some of these high-level positions. And um, I think that that always happens after an election. You kind of walk back the things that you've said, but... I think it's a little bit more extreme in this case, and that's interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, especially in the other direction, right? I mean, I think Mitt Romney, at his gut level, hates Donald Trump and thinks he's dumb. But when he came out of that dinner the other night and then was speaking really highly of him, I can only imagine what was said. I mean, I'm from New Jersey. I saw all kinds of pictures of Chris Christie standing behind Donald Trump looking terrified and depressed, um... And it is so incredible the way that Donald Trump has backtracked, right, in previously saying that Ben Carson was unhinged and then offering them the HUD position. Um, and then in the inverse, of course, all these people who I do think still hate Donald Trump um, now speaking highly of him. Maybe that's just a trapping of them thinking, all right, I need to run toward the fire, and if that requires that I say some nice things, whatever history will judge me. Um, but they still are saying it, and God, that is uncomfortable for them. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I would say I think, obviously, Donald Trump's election as president was very surprising, but what was not equally surprising, but definitely not completely expected, was that we were going to come in with this unified Republican government, right? I mean, there was so many, so many people, a lot of people thought that the Democrats were going to take the Senate, but a lot of people also thought they weren't. But now you have Republican House, Republican Senate, Republican President, obviously. So for a lot of sort of 
typical conservatives like guys like Romney, this is a huge opportunity to push the conservative agenda that Republicans have been waiting to push for eight years, basically. And if they can get Trump to just run with it, sort of as like an innocent bystander, they put the policies in front of him and he signs off on them, then for them, they're fine with that. And so that's what maybe leads them to sort of praise, not praise Trump, but like sort of go back on what they originally said and thought of him. And obviously it's the smart move. I mean, you want to look unified to the country, and that's what everybody's doing, even if it is painful, again, to say these nice things about him. Um, you know, especially like Paul Ryan, you know, this is someone who has to work closely with the president um, to push the, the agenda. So I think that's just like a, a consequence of the election. Um, and then moving on to the, um, the recounts, so Jill Stein... Um, sort of started the movement to do recounts in a few states, um, and then the Hillary campaign has joined that, which um, which was actually a little bit surprising to me, um, just because of the concession and how difficult of an election it was before the recount started, uh, and now we have this movement in a couple states to, to see what happens again. Yeah, it should be interesting. I I don't really make a lot of it. I don't think the election result's going to change. I mean, they would need to swing a couple states for her to win the Electoral College. Maybe the popular vote margins will change a little bit, but I I just I don't really I don't see any reason to believe that they counted it wrong the first time. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I would go even further. I would say anyone listening and anybody in America should be all but offended by Jill Stein's doing this. Yeah. I mean, make no mistake, she's doing this to increase her own name recognition, to raise money for the Green Party, and to get emails, right? Because when people donate, they put in their email, and she gets a bigger email list. Um, this is so impressively pointless. A recount will probably change margin within hundreds of votes, whereas she would need tens of thousands of votes. She would need to... Hillary would need to flip three states, um, three states in which recounts are going to probably be initiated, um, for Hillary to now win this election. And even if we were to have a recount and then Hillary were to win, we would be sentenced to such a mess. I mean, God, imagine. Yeah. It would, um, it would be bizarre to say the least, but I think also the other interesting side narrative to this story is that obviously Trump, as Trump does, has denounced the recount, um, you know, logically so. There's, again, sort of as Ben was saying, it's not really appropriate. But then he's also claiming that he didn't actually lose the popular vote because a bunch of non-citizens voted, which basically there's a lot of voter fraud is what he's saying. Um, so if you tweet that, then obviously that suggests that we should have a recount because we want to see how many illegal votes there were. Again, no reason at all to believe there were any illegal votes. He hasn't proposed any evidence. There's historically been pretty low rates of voter fraud. And when I say pretty low, I mean like really, really, really low. Um, no reason to believe it somehow magically happened this election, but again, he kind of caught himself in a position where he was saying no recount, but he said, but if millions of illegal people voted according to him, then there should be a recount. So I, I, don't think know. I think it's a fun preview of what's to come in his presidency, <laughs> to be honest. Like, yeah. I think he's proven that he's not going to stop saying whatever he wants to say just because he's the president-elect and um, possibly in the future the president. <laughs> Undoubtedly, in the future, the president. Yeah, I think this just... I honestly think his only motivation is that he dislikes that he lost the popular vote. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, my, 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 where are we headed? 
Yeah, and so obviously the other pretty big story coming out of last week, Friday night, Fidel Castro, longtime dictator, ruler, president of Cuba, the guy who started La Revolución, passed away. Um, I'm from Miami. I'm half Cuban, half Puerto Rican. It was a pretty big moment for me and my family, as well as for a lot of the Cuban Americans in the Miami community. I, you know, there's parties in the streets. There are still parties in the streets for days. There's sort of, for me, I don't really see that there's two sides to this coin, but for a lot of people there are, right? Castro violated so many human rights, just caused so much pain and suffering to so many people, jailed people for dissidents, killed people for dissidents, no free elections, no free press, um, none of that, no democracy, basically, none of that jazz, but did uh, increase literacy rates to pretty much worldwide highs in Cuba. They have like literacy rate like 99.8% or something. Free education for all, free healthcare for all, pretty good healthcare at that, but um, the debate is at what cost, right? Personally, I was happy the man died. He did a lot of bad stuff to my family, lots of families I know, but um, I don't know. It kind of pains me to see some people defending him, but I guess I get the point. I don't know. Well, yeah, and I think that this also just brings up the the United States relationship with Cuba going forward with um, President-elect Trump and what that's going to look like, um, especially after all the sort of work Obama did and the Obama administration put in um, to formalizing that relationship. Um, the first flight to Cuba from the United States, I believe, happened not too long ago. Yeah, it took off like literally two days after the man's death or something, <laughs> ironically so. Um, yeah, exactly. So I think this is, this just resurfaces that conversation and um, what it's going to look like with this changing landscape that we're seeing um, in politics right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I wonder, Trump's talked about needing a better deal. It's unclear what that means. Um, I wonder how our projection of economic power uh, will change the game there, and specifically what um, that will mean for other countries. A lot of the conversations um, after Castro's death have been about his divergent perception in the U.S. and throughout Africa and throughout Latin America. I wonder if a change in Cuba will change Amer- uh, perceptions of America in those countries. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I hadn't thought about it that way. But he's been pretty much anti-America his entire life. So, um, yeah, should be really interesting to see what happens moving forward. And I will say Castro's death itself doesn't really change the situation in Cuba all too much. Raul's still in power, and he's not very different from his brother at all. He's instituted some capitalist reforms in the country which is good or bad depending on what side like what you believe economically but I mean we'll see um, let's see moving forward yeah back to some uh, campus news before the break uh, I think it was a week before the break there was a student and faculty walkout um, and it was sort of in support of making Stanford University uh, a sanctuary campus that was one of the underlying goals of the organizers. Um, So there were hundreds of students and faculty that gathered in White Plaza and then did a small march around campus. Um, There was some pretty powerful speeches um, by students and, again, administrators. So it was a really interesting moment on campus, especially um, with the climate being what it was, um, and an almost completely... um, 
anti-Trump student body, I would say. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I would add to that, one of the interesting sort of underlying narratives overlooked piece of this walkout was actually on the Facebook page there were a list of demands included. I think a lot of people joined the walkout because they sort of didn't like the result of the election, didn't like the way it went, wanted to express their disappointment, their angst about what's to come in America. But beneath all that, there were some in the crowd that were sort of walking out for these demands, um, which sort of just generates this whole other conversation about demand-type activism and sort of the rhetoric surrounding that. I personally, I don't really like demand-style activism. Protests and such are fine, but demanding things? I don't know, Ben, do you want to... Yeah, so my previous objections were first um, about the tenor of demand and then secondarily um, about what it meant for the school to become a sanctuary campus. Um, I don't know. I kind of got over the demand thing. I mean, look, I still disagree that it's the best way to go about trying to get change done, Um, but I don't know if it's necessarily such a bad thing. I don't know who it hurts. I mean, yes, I find it annoying, but if they want to make demands, yes, if that gets their point across, fine. Um, I mean, look, if we become a sanctuary campus, there's a non-zero probability that the new administration uh, will push to make such campuses uh, have to give up federal funding. Um, And I don't think our school is ready to do that. And I don't know if that's a length that we should go to. I don't also mean to say that it isn't. Um, I genuinely mean that I don't know. Um, Our school depends on a whole lot of federal dollars. Uh, and if we are, if our school's existence comes into play, I don't know what kinds of obligations we have. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's... Yeah. Well, and I think the thing about, um, demands that you kind of both brought up, I, I think it's so rooted in this desire for student action. And I think that that's one of the biggest ways and one of the only ways students feel like they can... Um, get their points across sometimes or get the the real tangible action that they want um, accomplished you know there's not a whole lot I think students feel like that they can do and maybe and there I don't think there is Um, but one of those ways to sort of express anger and look for a solution is is through things like demands and so I I think that that's why this happened and I think that's why this happens so much or we see you know, a lot of student groups saying these are our demands um, because we've seen that in the past. We've seen that with other, who's teaching us. A lot of these other movements use the same sort of style and rhetoric. Um, but I agree and I fully acknowledge that maybe this rhetoric isn't as nuanced as the situation is demanding um, because there are other concerns and other things to look at and feasibility is absolutely one of them. And I think it's interesting, and I don't think the conversation on campus is being had, especially when it comes to being a sanctuary campus, of our students, are we as students willing to give up some of the prestige of our university that comes with things like federal funding and having lots of money to declare ourselves a sanctuary campus, and what does that mean for the future of the university? And so I think it's very easy to call out um, the administration and call out the university as a whole without necessarily looking as deep into it as the university has to when making these types of decisions. Yeah, and I was told that there was a faculty senate meeting and that um, Mark Tessier-Levine would be commenting on this, so we will probably have a verdict soon. Yeah, and 
just, for, just to clarify what I was saying about the mans earlier, I sort of agree both with what Ben and Kayla just said in the sense that, A, I don't view it as the most effective form of activism, and that's fine if it's not. And at the same time, you know, it just sort of creates this unnecessary binary, in my opinion, in the sense that we have this demand, you know, Stanford, Stanford, we want Stanford to be a sanctuary campus, right? And if I say, well, no, I don't know if that's the best route, then that sort of implies from an outsider's perspective, someone that doesn't know me, that may imply that, oh, he doesn't support undocumented he doesn't support undocumented students. Like, some people may lead to that conclusion because I didn't support this demand. Or in the sense that, like, you know, if I had the opportunity to refine the demand or refine the policy, then maybe I would support it in a different form. But the way it's laid out, it's like a, you're either for it or you're against it, and if you're against it, there could be a host of reasons you're against it, but you might be, people may think you're against it for a reason that you're not actually against it. Yeah, I mean, I think this is also a bit fraught. I mean, I the, the notion of demands lost a lot of credibility in my mind when last year some group, I believe it was Who's Teaching Us, demanded, um, within a set of demands regarding teacher representation, that John Hennessy, the president at that point, have hold an event in the Native American Community Center where he acknowledges his white privilege. Um, my oh my, I can only imagine the look on John's face in the event that he even did read that. Uh, not to say that he shouldn't acknowledge his white privilege, but that the, like when one makes that level of demand... Um, I think they lose an amount of credibility. Yeah, and again, like, that's... What Ben just did is sort of my point exactly, right? Just because he made that statement doesn't mean that he doesn't think John Hennessy should acknowledge his white privilege in some form, but to sort of make that sort of demand, I don't know. Yeah, no, <laughs> and, and, and again, to, like, to counter again, I think it's it goes back to students really wanting something tangible in front of them. Exactly, yeah, the immediacy can, of it all. They, they can acknowledge, yes, because yeah. the election had just happened when the walkout happened, and, you know, it's it's a very much feeling of, okay, as Stanford students, what can we do? And yeah. that, I think, is where these things come from. And, sure. you know, pointing to John Hennessy standing in a room saying, I, I acknowledge my white privilege is definitely something tangible that, uh, you know, a group could hold on to and... Um, yeah, for sure. And so I get. I think what I'm getting at is maybe the feasibility needs to be considered, but I don't think that this um, this rhetoric of demands is going anywhere, uh, because I think it really gives the student body a feeling of power, um, especially, you know, when it doesn't feel like that there's a whole lot maybe that they can do on an individual level. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I think that just about wraps it up for our weekly coverage. Uh, definitely stay tuned. Akash is going to get into a great interview right now with Ralph Castro, who's the Director of Office and Alcohol of Policy and Education here at Stanford, and Michael Kim. Um, we've, we're have now nine weeks into Stanford's new alcohol policy, um, so things are shaping up, so stay tuned to hear more about that. Yeah, and for all you Stanford students out there, um, go crush week nine like Stanford crushed Cal in the big game. This morning we have with us today Mr. Ralph Castro, the Director of the Office of Alcohol Policy Education and Associate Dean of Students, and Michael Kim, a senior who RA'd in the freshman dorm Otero last year, is an RA in Sigma Nu this year, and is on the ASSU's Executive Cabinet as Lead of Social Life Committee. Welcome both of you. Thanks. Thank you. 
this has been a pretty controversial policy, one of the sort of more controversial parts of the of the new school year, and not everyone is happy about it. So I guess we'll start, Ralph, with you. Um, well, what is the goal behind this policy, and what was the uh, Office of Alcohol Policy and Education hoping to accomplish with this change? Yeah, I mean, basically the goal of this is to kind of reduce high-risk drinking and its related consequences. I mean, that's a goal that everybody agrees upon, students, faculty, administration. Um, so really the intent was to kind of just turn the volume down a little bit on, on high-risk drinking as it relates to hard alcohol, because we see that as a contributor to a lot of the, the, the negative consequences. <clears throat> that makes sense. Um, a lot of students have voiced concerns about this policy in regards to whether or not it will actually be effective in reducing high-risk drinking or, in, or whether or not it will have the unintended consequence of pushing students to drink in more secretive ways and or to try and find alcohol that is of a higher alcohol by volume content so they can get drunk faster and, and thus circumvent the policy. Is this something the office is worried about? And if so, how is it considering encountering that? Yeah, I mean, we, we, we thought about the different permutations around this. Uh, the intent of this was to just create a, you know, a policy that, that actually is informed by research. And so the two bodies of research that we looked at, public policy research, had to do with limiting kind of um, places that sell alcohol around campus. Um, so most of the places around campus sell large volume containers. And so by restricting the, the, the size of the container, it kind of lowers the, the density. People kind of have to hunt out and go find places if they really want to get hard, hard alcohol. <clears throat> and number two is that there's a whole body of research that shows when you can increase cost, it can also decrease use. And that's been shown with tobacco and alcohol and, 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 and even uh, sugary sodas and things like that. So that was the intent of what we were looking at. Is it, it wasn't really to kind of, it was for students to buy into the ultimate goal. Um, and so we want to work collaboratively with students around that piece. Obviously, there are ways to kind of people work around that. But what we're trying to do is educate people on the, the basis of why we did this and the research that supports it so that we can have a partnership. Mm -hmm. So that's not an adversary relationship of how do I get around this policy, but it's about what is the intent of this and how does this fit my goals and values. And we can all agree that sort of reducing high-risk drinking and reducing uh, alcohol-related accidents among students is, is an important goal. Um, and to that end, Michael, what would you say as someone who's has a lot of experience RAing, um, do you think that, or did you observe a lot of high-risk drinking in, in the dorm that you RAed last year? And did you see that as sort of a big contributor to the social life? And mm -hmm. and if you have had the opportunity to interact with your residents again this year, uh, how, how have you observed any changes in their behavior based on this new policy? Yeah, I mean, last year as an RA, I did see a lot of high-risk drinking behavior. Um, luckily, we were not we didn't have any incidents where we had to medically transport anyone, but I do think that when we look at medical transports from freshman dorms, most of them involve hard alcohol, and I think that's a function of a lot of students arriving not having had alcohol experiences beforehand, and I think something that does make sense about the policy is starting with uh, lower alcohol content beverages when you're just starting to experiment and learn about how you drink and how your body reacts to drinking. Uh, I want to follow up with both of you on one part of what Michael just said, which is that a lot of Stanford students might not have a lot of experience with alcohol before they come to college. Um, one part of, of the mission of the office is obviously education and alcohol education. And I'm, I'm curious how this new policy is being paired with sort of new approaches to educating students about alcohol in a way that will perhaps make them consider drinking 
more responsibly when they get started as opposed to sort of just diving right in and then potentially having to deal with some negative consequences? Yeah, I mean, we've been doing uh, education for years. I mean, we've been, we, I mean, in 2011, the Office of Alcohol Policy and Education was created and we, you know, pretty much doubled down on all of our education efforts that we did, particularly with first-year students with Frosh. Um, <clears throat> this year, we have a new uh, alcohol educator in the office that is kind of on a listening tour this quarter, gathering a ton of information about the types of educational things that, that students want. So we want to listen. So not just dictate what education we think, but, but listening. And we're hearing a lot about peer education. How do we engage students to talk to students around that? And, you know, there, there's kind of a different model that we have for drinkers and non-drinkers in, in a sense. You know, we, my office also runs Cardinal Knights, which is highly successful. It was developed for non-drinkers and light drinkers, but we're actually pulling in a lot of drinkers. Come, And what we find is about 28 to 30 percent of students that come say that they were likely to have been drinking had they not been at the Cardinal Knight event. So that's another risk reduction that we do, which is kind of educational. <clears throat> With upper class students, you know, we have our OA cup that we just relaunched this year, which now survives industrial dishwashers. It, it measures the, uh, the drinks about how much hard alcohol is a measured drink, wine, beer. There's a line on the side for ENAB, so you can have as much a non-alcoholic drink as you want. So that's an in the moment kind of thing that we're doing of the education is giving cups that show how, because there's a lot of research that shows that people aren't really good at, at measuring drinks. So we do a lot of this in the moment kinds of thing. We also have an app that helps, you know, track VAC, gives feedback in real time to students when they're drinking. So, you know, we're trying to do all of this in-person kind of outreach education and getting away from more of the traditional, let's, you know, go to your dorm and talk, but we really want to get in the moment when people are drinking or when people choose not to drink, offering alternatives. Right. Um, and Michael's and RA, if you want to comment on sort of how this has uh, impacted the way RAs are trained or the way sort of you interact with your students at the first door meetings. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, one of the biggest concerns that came up in the student body was how this alcohol policy would affect the RA student relationship, um, which at Stanford is well known for being really, really personal, really close. And by preventing or by keeping the RAs as like, guidance, you know, people who guide the residents and help the residents and not kind of people who enforce the rules. That's been something that Stanford students have always cherished. Luckily, uh, I was at RA training this year and talking to a lot of RAs and the staff or the administration has told us to essentially resume as usual. Like, yes, we want to put the policy in place. And yes, that means having dorm conversations about hard alcohol. But uh, your role as an RA stays the same. Like your primary goal is to support and love uh, the residents, and it's not to you know come down on them or exercise your authority and have to like intervene uh, and take away their handles or so on and so forth. Right, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. And uh, I imagine the environment in which you are in uh, this year is sort of very different from the environment in which you are at last year as a freshman dorm. Of course, this policy is, is definitely targeted more towards younger students. So, so mm-hmm. do you think that it has had the effect of? maintaining close relationships between RAs and their students while sort of the RAs are still authority figures for, for freshmen and sophomores? Or are you worried or have you observed the, the policy having some unintended consequences? Um, so it's a mixed bag. You know, I, I know a lot of current freshman RAs and I've been hearing from them what they see happening. I do think generally people are saying that their relationships are close and intimate like they expected them to be. I have heard of a few cases of difficulty where um, some students understand that the RAs won't push them on mm-hmm. the policy or like 
execute, you know, like take away their alcohol. And so they take advantage of that and they uh, kind of act on their own accord without concerning the RA's concerns. But that was one isolated case that I heard about. And I think in general, people are feeling like the students are equally respectful. And if anything, I think during some of the first weekends, I heard from a lot of staff saying that it was a little tamer or a little quieter than they expected it to be. Um, So I I would see those as positives. Um, We want to transition a little bit to a a sort of bigger picture question, which is the following. Ralph, given this new policy and the sort of new emphasis that Stanford has been placing this year on the role of alcohol in student life and on education and on alternative ways to, to spend Friday and Saturday nights, we're trying to get a sense of what the ideal alcohol culture looks like at Stanford. And this, this question, I guess, has uh, a lot of different forms. So first, h- how much do you think drinking should play a role in student life? And second, based on that, why, has this, why was this the specific policy that the office chose as opposed to something different, like only allowing, say, beer and wine or changing the, the age restrictions or the container size restrictions or so on? Yeah, all right, so <clears throat> there's a lot in there. Let me unpack <laughs> Go for it. Um, uh, I'll start first with why, why this direction. You know, when the conver- this has been a live conversation for years, actually, um, not only at Stanford but nationwide. I mean, a number of schools banned hard alcohol on their campuses. We, we, we've been studying those and looking at those about in 2011, we were part of this consortium of 32 schools that started studying different strategies. Um, that's when Dartmouth kind of made the decision to ban hard alcohol on their campus. At that point, we decided to kind of look and see what they were doing and study this a little bit more in our culture. Um, this isn't a new thing. In 2012, actually, our alcohol advisory board that had students, faculty, and staff on there did a de-thinking exercise to kind of develop strategies around programs, education, and policies, uh, and, you know, brainstormed, you know, over, you know, 50 different ideas, distilled them down to, like, seven, went in and voted on the top three. In the policy category, the top three things that actually popped up were revoking kind of tier one housing for students with repeated alcohol issues. The number two was limiting container size. The number three was actually enforcing the alcohol policy in freshman dorms. So that was that actually came from that group. At that point, we decided to kind of take that under advisement. And so it's not a new concept that, that just popped up. Mm-hmm. We knew we didn't want to go down the prohibition realm. You know, that, that, that just doesn't seem to be in, in, in line with our values of where we're at. Uh, but we wanted to be able, like I said earlier, to use the research that was out there to inform us. And how do we how do we use that research in a creative way here, which also allows people that are of age to use hard alcohol. We weren't trying to eliminate hard alcohol on campus, but really just kind of lower the effect. If somebody is a responsible drinker and wants to have a mixed drink, they can do that out of a pint. Uh, that's easy enough to mix a drink out of that. You don't need a handle to, to make that happen. So... That, that what kind of was our thinking and our intent around this, um, and it was based on already existing ideas that had been generated. Um, and then in the discussions that happened last spring as well, that idea again floated up from some of the discussions with RAs, RFs, and, and, and um, residents. Okay, um, that, that makes sense. One of the, the parts there that you talked about was the use of research and in involving and in, in influencing these decisions. And I know one of the concerns among the student body has been how the research and evaluation of this policy will look like and, and how inclusive that will be of, of students and of the sort of perspectives of new students as opposed to juniors and seniors, or I guess really more, more, more so juniors who may still be affected by this policy. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about how 
the OAP is, is conducting post facto research and evaluation of this policy and how going forward you're, you're involving the students in that. Yeah, so there's a, the vice provost has put together kind of a, an assessment measurement group to, to do this. We're, we're a part of that group. We're not leading the group, um, but we're at the table to help inform that and use some of our data points. So that's important to know. Um, and Res Ed is there as well and, and, and other offices. <clears throat> so we're looking at this multifacetedly. I mean, obviously there are large issues you can look at. You can look at transport numbers. You can look at survey numbers of, of you know, people's drinking rates and those things. But there's more of the intangibles as well of kind of localized data within the dorms um, that we're looking to be able to collect. Like how many times is there, is there damage? Is there, you know, damage reports, those kinds of things. Um, do, how many times is there vomit in the bathroom on a, on, on a given weekend? Um, those kinds of things as well. But also the qualitative kinds of things of how do we get people's students' perspectives of what they're seeing. When we're talking about culture change, so culture change isn't, oh, we've reduced binge drinking or we reduced transports, but it's really about changing people's attitudes and thinking, and that's a big piece of what we're trying to look at is how do we shift attitudes around needing hard alcohol. And in your previous question, the, the attitude we have around alcohol is really, it's been the same forever, and education is the key of how we want to educate people around this. And what I've always said is that I want, I think alcohol should be the accessory and not the ensemble, right? Mm -hmm. So if alcohol is the ensemble, if it's everything that you've got on when you go out, if you don't have it, then you're essentially naked, right? If it's the accessory, if it's the belt, if it's a tie, you don't have that, yeah, it might be a little off-putting, but you can still be present and be in the moment with that. Right. So that's what we're trying to do is, is try to allow students to, to understand that alcohol can be an accessory, but shouldn't be the, ent the, the entirety of what fun uh, should be. Uh, as a follow-up to that, Michael, could you, given your role in the ASSU as the, the lead of the Social Left Committee, could you speak to perhaps how the ASSU has had a role in the response to this policy and how the social life-related policies that the ASSU, the ASSU pursues are affected by this going forward, or, or whether this has had any effect at all on your role? Mm -hmm. Primarily, the ASSU's response has been to distance uh, the alcohol policy from any sort of sexual assault prevention models, and I think that was put out by our ASSU president and vice president in a very formal statement. I think that really helped to say that we as an institution don't support that connection mm -hmm. at all. At the same time, I think in terms of how it's affected my job, I don't think it's really affected my job a lot. I manage mostly like all-campus parties and thinking about what are the spaces that are available to students, including freshmen, when they go out on the weekends. Unfortunately, we've had much fewer, I think, all-campus spaces this year. And that's in result, or that's mostly due to uh, fraternity restrictions and different probations that different fraternities are on. Um, but I definitely think that something that is changing and that I've seen is that the default is no longer having hard alcohol available at parties or at in your dorm. I think definitely last year I saw that it was almost expected that you would drink hard alcohol and if someone was carrying a handle, they would offer you some and it would be much more difficult to say no in that mm -hmm. scenario. I think now the default is not having hard alcohol. Thus, if you do choose to drink it, which many students still do, it is an active choice as opposed to a passive receiving of that from a friend. And I think that shift is actually has been very positive, uh, at least in my community so far, and that's that's a good thing. 
So uh, you feel essentially that one effect of the new policy has been to reduce the, like Ralph said, the accessibility of hard alcohol for mm-hmm. uh, freshmen or people who are underage, right? Yeah, and thinking culturally, it, it changes the social expectation. Like if you maybe two years ago went to an all-campus party, you might see someone carrying a handle, you know, giving it out to people kind of very liberally. This year you would not see that. And that, I think, does shift the culture in the mind of a student who's going out to a party of what they expect or what they think is like normal drinking habit. That makes sense. One so, sort of concern that, that has been raised in regards to this issue, which, which anecdotally it sounds like is not actually that much of a concern, is the notion that freshmen who are still young and rebellious and in their first year of college will go out of their way to, to violate this policy just to sort of flaunt authority and be drunk for the sake of drunkenness. And it sounds like that's not really the case. Um, but I was wondering if, if y'all could both speak briefly to the, the way in which freshman drinking habits, especially like the idea of pre-gaming or drinking in your room with friends or, or sort of hosting in-room parties on weekends could be affected by this. I understand in terms of all campuses, the culture is now different, but mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of people who go to all campus parties might not necessarily be the intended audience of this policy. Yeah, and I also wanted to say that because all campus parties no longer serve alcohol, which was something that they did uh, in the past, um, I definitely think there is an increase in the idea of pre-gaming mm-hmm. or there is more pressure to be drunk by the time you arrive at a fraternity party or at an, another all-campus party in a way that might have been different three to five years ago. Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> as you mentioned earlier, a lot of the students that matriculate at Stanford are not necessarily regular drinkers when they get here. So we know that we are kind of a petri dish for a lot of that experimentation, not only with mm-hmm with both relationships, with everything, to be honest. And so we know we need to create kind of environment where that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But we're smart people at Stanford. I mean, we, to be honest, I, I, I don't think there's a notion of, of freshmen coming in saying, well, I'm, I'm going to thwart this. I think, to be honest, in my experience with, 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 with Frosh, they're mostly like, all right, what is the, tell me what we're supposed to do, right? They want mm-hmm. to kind of fit in. They want to adjust to what Stanford is. There's a lot of that uh, pressure to want to do that. So when the, the culture can dictate what that is and say, actually, it's not about getting drunk. It's not about drinking hard alcohol to the point where you puke or black out. It's really just about experimentation and finding out where your limits are that way. That is a much different message than I think was previously what Mike had said about carry a handle. I guess I'm supposed to be drinking a lot of hard alcohol because it looks like that's the expectation for me. So it's really changing that piece. One of the other pieces that we're looking at is, you know, we. I, I am an instructor in, in the School of Medicine and teach a class in pediatrics. Uh, pediatrics 116 is called Alcohol Issues in the Campus Culture. And what we're looking to do with that, it, it's an it's a alcohol and drug studies course that has a research component where everybody has to do a, a you know, start to finish, conceptualize, implement, and evaluate a research study in 10 weeks. One of the pieces that we're looking to do is at the end, is after we talk about all the science and all the, the sociocultural aspects of alcohol and drugs, um, is have students have some type of an experiential piece. So if they're 21, we may, we're thinking about the idea of going to a brewery and seeing what that brewery science looks like, or a winery and looking at viticulture, and getting students that experience and seeing that. So it classes it up a little bit, because there's science around this. Right, um, right. And that it's not, you know, we have to respect our food, what we take into our bodies, and when you see how it's produced, in the industry that's that's there, people have a much better respect for that. At least I do. When I go to a brewery and I see all the work that goes into that, and I think about chugging beer, it's like, wow, 
someone spent a lot of time producing this and, you know, mm-hmm. it's kind of disrespectful uh, in a sense. Right. There are ways to drink that are a little bit less wanton and a little bit more sophisticated, Absolutely, I guess. Absolutely, yeah. We just have a couple more questions for the two of you. First, if both of you had uh, had thoughts from an ASU, ASSU perspective and from an official perspective on what this policy looks like going forward and how, uh, if at all, the, the fine-tuning of it will look and what other policies are being considered for future years and future classes in terms of managing the drinking culture and making sure that, that we do achieve that sort of ideal state of, of responsible drinking that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I mean, this is where we're at right now. Uh, there, there's nothing on the docket of, of rolling out anything new. This is going to take a few years to be able to assess and see what happens. Culture change takes time. And so this year we anticipated a lot of turmoil, a lot of angst around this. I think we've kind of gotten through that curve pretty quickly, to be honest, um, in my opinion, with getting students to understand what this is like. And it began with the, with the RAs this year, for sure. Uh, the timing was unfortunate. It kind of came out you know, late August and, right. And, and right before training and all that. But I think we, we did put in the, the time to really have discussions with everybody. That's why I'm here talking to you today, too, is that we want to get the information out there. But right now, this is what we're focused on. And not just that policy, but the messaging around that, the ultimate goal of why we're doing this and getting people to understand what that is, coupled with all the educational messages, that's going to take some time to kind of get in and hopefully make this a, a much healthier campus particularly around hard alcohol. Yeah, I don't know um, what's going to change going forward, really. Um, I definitely think the idea of intentional drinking or getting students to think really critically about how they're drinking or what parts of our culture are toxic to interacting safely with alcohol. For example, we, as a row staff or row RAs group, uh, have done a lot of talking with OAP, and this has actually been great for us to open up some channels of conversation We've been talking about doing like a row RA outreach to the freshmen saying, you know, for example, that blacking out is not cool. Like no one appreciates anyone who's blacked out drunk. And then also talking about these are our living spaces. So as you come to these parties, please respect mm-hmm. this house that we live in, that we eat food on these tables that you dance on. Um, so I think it's been, you know, good for the row RAs to start thinking about how do we outreach to the freshmen and do this peer education that we've wanted to do for a long time and I do think that going forward if more restrictions were put in place I think the messaging I guess the message right now is that we don't want to restrict you but we don't fully trust you and I think that's a line that OAVE and the university are trying to figure out you know how much do we trust these students to drink safely on their own accord and how much do we step in as sort of a you know guardian figure and make sure that it's not going overboard and I think the messaging around this alcohol policy essentially was, you know, we don't trust you with the amount of liberty that we have trusted you with in the past. And that was hard to hear from the student's perspective. But I also think there were real, like, real reasons why they felt that they couldn't trust us with all that liberty. And I think now the general feeling from the student body has definitely shifted uh, in understanding a little more about where OAP's coming from and also seeing that the impact of the policy has not been as drastic as people expected it to be. And it's light enforcement has helped uh, like maintain the RA-student relationship. Right, something along the lines of trust but verify, right? Mm-hmm. Um, last question for Ralph. I know we're heading into big game this week and then eventually dead week and then finals week. Mm-hmm. So just on a, a 
out of purely personal curiosity, would you say that there are times during the year that tend to be more high risk in terms of alcohol? And if so, what would you say to students as they sort of are heading into the more stressful parts of the quarter in terms of, of making sure that they stay safe and stay responsible? Yeah, I mean, obviously, <clears throat> historically, the first few weeks of, of the fall quarter tend to be higher risk. <clears throat> but also, that first week of December also tends to be a higher risk time, um, right after classes, before finals kinds of start. So I, I think... Our message is the same for anything. It's, we want students to avail themselves of all the resources that we have. Talk to the resident staff. Um, if they need support, you know, check in with CAPS. Use what the, the, the immense safety net that we have at Stanford to kind of uh, use that to de-stress. Don't, you don't need alcohol to de-stress. You know? And like I said, if alcohol is the, the mechanism that you're using to, to check out, we have to think about why that is. Are there other things that we can do? Is there, you know, meditation or deep breathing, mindfulness. I mean, there's a lot of things that can actually help you reduce your stress as opposed to drinking a lot and then feeling like crap the next morning. Right. It just actually is a cyclical thing, makes you feel worse. Uh, then you feel guilty about what about that. So um, so that that's my message is to really avail yourself of all of the resources and, and don't necessarily use alcohol as a default to reduce stress. Thank you very much, both of you. We really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. That was the Axe in Politics. Make sure to come back next week. Subscribe on iTunes. And if you have a comment, something to say, go on our website, stanfordpolitics.com, or find us on Facebook and send a shout. Maybe you'll end up on the podcast. See you.